Hurricane Adalia is predicted to bring a catastrophic storm surge to Florida's Gulf Coast when it makes landfall later this morning. It's Wednesday, August 30th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the latest on the storm, it's gaining strength and speed as it nears Florida's Big Bend region. Also, the pharmaceutical industry pushes back against a White House plan to cut Medicare prices for 10 popular drugs, a move political insiders see as a win for the Biden administration. Releasing this list helps make this historic moment more real for Medicare beneficiaries and voters. Politically, it's a very good thing for them. And this hour. This is not your grandmother's heat. So we have to accept that our environment has changed. Massachusetts doctor's offices are testing a warning system for days hot enough to affect patients' health. Cloudy with showers today in the 70s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. Hurricane Idalia is growing stronger by the hour. The Category 4 storm is expected to make landfall along the Gulf Coast of Florida this morning. Idalia is headed for the Big Bend region. Storm surge could be several feet. Laura Wilcoxon is an emergency management official in Pasco County, north of Tampa. Wilcoxon says first responders will use extreme caution during the height of the storm. If uh, the storm conditions are severe out there, we will not send responders out at that time. That's why we started evacuation orders early. That's why we started encouraging residents to take proactive measures, start preparing your house. Adalia's winds are gusting at 130 miles per hour. A former leader of the far-right group, the Proud Boys, will be sentenced in federal court today. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz reports Enrique Tario was convicted of seditious conspiracy and other crimes for his role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Prosecutors say Enrique Tario and his fellow Proud Boys plan to stop the certification of the 2020 presidential election results in Congress. This was to keep Donald Trump in power. Prosecutors are seeking 33 years for Tario and 27 for Ethan Nordine for their roles in this conspiracy. If this happens, theirs will be the longest sentences to date for the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Tario's sentencing hearing is set to begin at 10 a.m. local time, with Nordine starting at 2 p.m. The three other co-defendants will be sentenced later this week. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News. The Tennessee House adjourned a special session on gun reform without taking specific action. But the House Speaker and a lawmaker who was removed and later reinstated from his seat over protests both say things got physical. Blaze Ganey with member station WPLN reports. After Republican House Speaker Cameron Sexton gaveled to adjourn the floor session, he began walking down from the dais. Democratic Representative Justin J. Pearson approached him and they made contact. How it happened is in dispute. Sexton says he was pushed from the back by his security. And I moved to the right, right? That's normal part of how you move when you get hit from the back and trying to avoid somebody. I didn't even look back to see if there was anybody there because I didn't feel anybody there. But Pearson was there and he believes Sexton bumped into him on purpose. For now, Sexton says he's moving on from it. For NPR News, I'm Blaze Ganey in Nashville. Today, President Biden is expected to announce $95 million in federal assistance to improve Hawaii's power grid and strengthen its ability to withstand future disasters. Devastating wildfires claimed the lives of at least 115 people on Maui earlier this month. You're listening to NPR News. 
In Gabon, a group of army officers announced earlier today that it has seized control of the Central African government. The apparent coup comes shortly after incumbent, the incumbent president was declared the winner of Saturday's disputed presidential election. Ish Mafundikwa reports. In a televised announcement, the soldiers said they had annulled the election results, closed all borders, and dissolved all state institutions. They also said they've set up a committee of transition and the restoration of institutions. Albert Ondo Osa, the leading opposition candidate, had repeatedly accused the Bongo camp of fraud and demanded to be declared the winner. The government responded by suspending internet access across the country and declaring a curfew. Bongo took office in 2009 following the death of his father Omar, who ran the Central African nation for 42 years. Resource-rich Gabon is a member of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. For NPR News, I am Ish Mafundikwa in Harare. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is wrapping up talks in China. Today, she's making remarks at a conference of female executives. In Beijing, Raimondo met with her economic counterpart to promote trade between the two largest economies in the world. The talks come amid ongoing tense relations between the U.S. and China. Raimondo and Chinese leaders agreed to exchange information on export restrictions on sensitive technology. I'm Kristen Wright, NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The advocacy group Lawyers for Civil Rights is calling on cities in Massachusetts to address violence it says disproportionately harms communities of color. This comes after shootings last weekend in Boston and Worcester left 10 people hurt. More now from WBUR's Emily Piper Valillo. On Tuesday, the Boston-based legal group sent letters to the mayors of Boston, Worcester, and Springfield, urging them to curb gun violence by investing in youth programming and calling on police departments to diversify. Massachusetts has one of the lowest rates of gun fatalities in the nation, according to federal data. But Lawyers for Civil Rights says big city police departments must do more to build trust in communities of color. The group is looking to meet with city officials to help support public safety efforts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily Piper Valillo. Boston no longer notes gender identity on marriage certificates. The city says it's part of an effort to improve equity for gender and sexual minorities. Yesterday, city registrar Paul Chung handed the city's first marriage certificate without gender markers to Kimberly Roden, Boston's director of policy and strategic initiatives. This is the first marriage certificate. And I think it's fitting because you are such an important part of making these changes happen. So it's my privilege to present this to you. Congratulations. Many, many, many happy years ahead for you and Jacob. The city is also issuing new guidelines about when to ask people about their gender identity and pronouns and how gender data should be collected when necessary. A man involved in a forklift accident at Logan Airport has died. State police say the 51-year-old man was driving the forklift yesterday when it hit a low-clearance entrance and tipped over. The man's name has not been released. No one else was hurt. 
The site of a former Catholic school in Cambridge is on the market. The Matignon School is selling its campus. The school closed in June because of dwindling enrollment. The sale includes the school building, a gym, and athletic fields. The real estate firm selling the property tells the Boston Globe it's worth up to $30 million. It's 708. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. The Red Sox lost to the Houston Astros 6-2 last night at Fenway. The teams will play again this afternoon. Cloudy today with a chance for showers or storms. It'll be in the upper 70s. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 50s. Sunny tomorrow and in the 70s. It should stay dry through the holiday weekend. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Florida's Gulf Coast is bracing for a major hurricane. Idalia is the hurricane's name, and it's set to make landfall today in the state's Big Bend area. It's now a Category 4 storm with 130 mile-per-hour winds. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis and many other officials are urging residents to evacuate coastal areas. Storm surge could reach 10 to 15 feet in some areas of the Big Bend. That is life-threatening storm surge. That is storm surge that if, that if you're there while that hits, uh, it's going to be very difficult to survive that. Hurricane Adalia is coming ashore in one of Florida's least developed areas, but it's expected to have a big impact on communities all along the Gulf Coast, as well as in Georgia and the Carolinas. And NPR's Greg Allen is with us now from St. Petersburg to tell us more. Greg, good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So tell us the latest on the storm. Well, Idalia has grown dramatically over the last several hours. It's undergone what meteorologists call a rapid intensification. We've been seeing that a lot from hurricanes in recent years. It's on track now to come ashore a bit north of Cedar Key. That's in the Big Bend area where Florida's Gulf Coast meets the Panhandle. It's relatively undeveloped there with mostly small towns. At the same time, it's an area that's especially susceptible to storm surge. And many of the homes are older and not really built to withstand hurricanes. So with 130 mile per hour winds and a storm Storm surge as high as 16 feet, Idalia is going to do a lot of damage. Nearly 30 counties in Florida have issued either voluntary or mandatory evacuation orders. Do we have a sense of whether people in vulnerable areas did get out? Well, that's always a major question in storms like this one. Governor DeSantis says he believes people have evacuated from the most vulnerable areas. He says that includes Cedar Key, an island that's expected to be completely inundated by the storm surge. I think on Cedar Key, the vast majority have done it. I don't think it's 100%, but I think it was a, a lot and probably a bigger percentage in some of those really sensitive areas than happened in Hurricane Ian. In Hurricane Ian last year, many people stayed behind and dozens of those who did drowned in the storm surge. Idalia is coming ashore in a much less populated area, and there's hope that we won't see a repeat of those numbers. What about in the Tampa Bay area where you are now? Well, there are evacuation orders for coastal zones here. This area is expecting a four to six foot storm surge. We're already seeing water in the streets. Many people have left, but Woody's, a bar on the water, was open yesterday. Owner Roxy Riles says they plan to be open today despite a mandatory evacuation order. 
a lot of the locals aren't leaving. Um, we closed last year and got a lot of complaints, which was surprising. Um, but so this year we're like, you know what? We're staying open. We built the wall. We poured new foundations. We've got new um, new patios. We're ready to go. Everything's bolted down and secured. We're ready. Riles recently built a new five-foot flood wall and made other improvements that she thinks will help her business withstand a storm surge. I hope so. Um, yeah. What are our officials' plans to respond to the storm after it makes landfall? Well, a Florida's emergency management director is warning that search and rescue crews will not be able to respond to calls for help until after the storm passes. They say they may begin rescues this evening if necessary. In terms of impacts, there's likely to be widespread power outages from downed trees and lines. Tens of thousands of linemen are prepositioned and ready to go in uh, to restore power, but that can take time, especially if we see major damage. Idalia is a fast-moving storm and expected to still be a hurricane when it gets into Georgia by this afternoon. Officials are warning about the possibility of flooding and tornadoes as it moves through Georgia into the Carolinas. That is NPR's Greg Allen in St. Petersburg. Greg, thank you. You're welcome. About a quarter of adults in the U.S. say they have to take four or more prescription medications. That's according to Kaiser Health News. And many patients say they make tough sacrifices, such as giving up groceries to be able to pay for them. The Biden administration has picked 10 medications to start negotiating lower prices for Medicare patients. And it's overriding an argument from the pharmaceutical industry that reduced profits could shortchange their ability to research new treatments. We're going to take a closer look with Mariana Sokal. She's an associate scientist with the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School. School of Public Health, and she teaches classes on how drug prices are set. Doctor, why do Americans pay so much more for prescription medications than anywhere else in the in the world? Well, we have a series of, of issues here on how our drug pricing system works, especially being the only country where drug manufacturers can really extend their patent lives for a long period of time. That's really what we're seeing with these drugs that have uh, that have been selected for negotiation. They have been in, the, in our market for many, many years. And whereas their prices in other countries go down, the prices here in the United States only go up. So the mechanisms aren't in place here. Exactly. What we rely on, it's called a market-based system for setting prices, which really means drug manufacturers can set whatever price they want, and the market has to respond to those prices. Sometimes payer will respond by somehow restricting access, such as through prior authorization, for example, or through higher and higher co-pays and cost shares. So in other occasions, when payers don't really restrict access necessarily, patients then have to restrict because they cannot afford it. But manufacturers are free to set whatever price they want. The price negotiations that we have in place, they really depend on having generic generics entering the market, biosimilars entering the market. And, and sometimes this fails because patent terms, patent expansions can really prevent these competitors from entering our market. Can generics, though, control prices, though? Generics just offer therapeutic alternatives in the marketplace. Mm. And so payers can choose between a cheaper generic versus a more expensive branded if they so prefer. But without the generics, then those mechanisms fail. Then there is no other way to bring prices down. All right. So when it comes to new drugs or drugs that are being worked on for the future, back in 2021, the House Oversight Committee found that the 14 biggest drug companies paid themselves and their investors billions more than they spent on research and development. Uh, and let's hear what uh, Senator, U.S. Senator Amy Klobuchar told Morning Edition yesterday. The profit margins of the big drug companies are almost three times the average profit margin of the other industries in this nation. 
people shouldn't let these big drug companies scare them. There's been tons of federal taxpayer money into the research. It's the taxpayers that are paying these outrageous prices that aren't charged in other countries. Doctor, so how does this square with pharmaceutical companies such as Novartis saying that they're going to have to drop research and development because of lower drug prices? See, um, the question here is that these are very, very old drugs. It is true that when a drug comes to market, the manufacturer needs to recoup what they're invested in that drug and also pay for the new lines of development that they will open. But these drugs that have been selected for negotiation, they have been in the market for a long time. So that time is passing. You know, they have had their opportunity to recoup their investment. And like you mentioned, and Senator Klobuchar mentioned, there are other places where drug manufacturers can choose to cut investment. Uh, compensation is one, but there's also marketing and advertisement. There's another, you know, there's a series of other places where they can choose to cut investment and uh, not on the new drugs that will allow them to have market share and to save lives in the future. So are pharmaceutical companies lying or are they just playing the free market game? I don't know the answer for that, but perhaps <laughs> they're just trying to um, to raise awareness of their investments, which I think it is very justified. You know, we all will need pharmaceuticals at some point in our lives and pharmaceuticals can really, you know, uh, provide, you know, incredible cures and improve the quality of life of many people and we all need them. But the question is, you know, um, what exactly is at stake here? And, and importantly, these are very old drugs that have had their opportunity of recouping their investment on these drugs. So could negotiations for prescriptions covered by Medicare maybe open the door to reduce drug prices across the board? I think it's very important to mention that this is the very first time Americans will know how much the actual price of a drug is. This information is not available today. The way our market works, it's so opaque that um, th what the actual price of a drug is, nobody really knows. So having that transparency will definitely help patients and plans even outside of Medicare to advocate and push for lower drug prices for them as well. Mariana Sokal at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks. Thank you. Hollywood writers and actors are on strike. So are some hotel workers. Auto workers could be next. And even as negotiations hit impasse after impasse, labor unions have plenty of support across the country. NPR's Andrea Shu has the results of a new Gallup survey. This latest survey finds two-thirds of Americans approve of unions. That's down a few percentage points from last year, but it continues a trend that stands in sharp contrast to the last six decades. Lydia Saad, Gallup's director of U.S. social research, says it's due to the high visibility of unions over the past few years. The accumulation of labor battles that have been going on at places like Starbucks. At the same time, we've had Republicans push back on corporate America, so perhaps making them more sympathetic to organized labor. Now, there is still a lot of skepticism about unions. A third of respondents said they believe unions mostly hurt the U.S. economy. But Saad points out that's down from 2009, a year after the auto industry got bailed out in the depths of the Great Recession. 2009, you had a majority of Americans saying that unions mostly hurt the economy. One thing that's remained steady, support for workers themselves. In these David and Goliath battles, Saad says, Americans historically sympathize with labor. In the latest survey, Gallup found 72% side with the striking Hollywood writers over the Hollywood studios. Up, get down. How about you? 
And even more aside with the United Auto Workers, led by Sean Fain, over the Detroit automakers. And it's time, it's time to take back what's ours. Saad notes the strong support for labor unions is not being driven by personal connections as it was in the 50s. It's just definitely being driven by something else today and just these broader attitudes about worker rights or corporate wealth or whatever it may be. After all, only 10% of U.S. workers belong to unions today, the lowest on record. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, have you signed up for a free month of a service like Hulu or Netflix and then forgot to cancel and wound up paying for several months? You're not alone. Now researchers are tallying up the costs. It's 720. Yes, it's scary. It can cause destruction and loss of life, and there's reasons to be scared of it. But fire is not bad or good. It just is. But people make choices about where to live and how to rebuild after a fire. More than ever, communities are asking how to rebuild with resilience after your world has burned down. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A chance of showers and thunderstorms throughout the day today, otherwise cloudy with a high near 74. The National Weather Service still has a high surf advisory in effect for the waters along the Cape Islands and South Coast. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low around 60. Tomorrow, sunny with a high back around 74. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Paycom, an HR and payroll tool, designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Marriage has a very specific meaning in India. It's a union that's been arranged by the bride and groom's families, or at least done with their blessing. Our next story is about love marriage, which often comes without parental consent. It can be risky, with partners from different social groups facing the potential threat of violence. However, a group called the Love Commandos vowed to help. Rough Translation podcast host Gregory Warner and reporter Lauren Frere look into whether the group made good on its promise or took advantage of vulnerable couples. Back in 2018, a newlywed couple named Akanksha and Surya made a long bus ride from the northern Indian state of Uttar Pradesh to New Delhi. They finally felt a sense of hope about the future. Love is a beautiful feeling. butterfly <laughs> Akanksha's new husband, Surya, was a lower caste. We're only using their first names for their safety. Akanksha says her parents were opposed to the match. She says they locked her up after discovering she and Surya had secretly wed. 
He tried to force her to file rape and kidnapping charges against him. Now, we didn't ask Akanksha's parents about these allegations out of an abundance of caution for her safety. But involving the police to break up unapproved marriages, that's a familiar strategy. I'm very emotional that time. And... Uh, I'm also scared. But during the time that Akanksha was locked up, Surya made a phone call to a volunteer group called the Love Commandos. They helped put pressure on the police, arranged for Surya to find Akanksha and rescue her. Welcome. And then paid for a bus ticket to bring the newlyweds to their main shelter. It is our base shelter, base shelter of the Love Commandos. Sanjay Sachdev is the group's co-founder. He launched the Love Commandos more than a decade ago with this unique idea to give couples on the run a place to hide from their parents. We had to go up this very steep set of stairs, like it was almost like a ladder, through this door and then into the safe house. NPR correspondent Lauren Freyer made a trip to the shelter in 2018. Here we have a metal detector for checking. Checking to see if I've come in with weapons. Yeah. The idea for the Love Commandos has its origin in a familiar holiday. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. At least to judge by the ads you would see on TV. Valentine's Day in India is about as cheerful and as corporate as almost anywhere else on the planet. This is so romantic. But. It's uh, Valentine's Day today. Look at Indian news and this is your Valentine's Day. And we're not surprised because you are seeing Bajrang Dal workers chasing couples in Ahmedabad. Hindu nationalist vigilantes are known to target couples they find in the street on Valentine's Day. They had said that they will hit the couples with sticks. and hit They say that the holiday is a Western import that's corrupting Indian values. And hit them with rotten tomatoes and all these kind of statements. That they had but Sachdev defended Valentine's Day. He started helping to protect couples that were being attacked. And then in 2012, his new group, Love Commandos, entered the national limelight when he appeared on the country's biggest talk show. And I was quite fascinated because it's a very good story. Swati Malawal is the head of the Delhi Commission for Women, or DCW. And would you say you were on the same side? The same side in terms of helping these couples? Initially, yes, because what he actually told us was very different from what happened. In January of 2019, after the Love Commandos had been in operation for almost a decade, Molly Wall received a tip from a young woman who was staying at the shelter with her husband. And we were totally shocked to hear what we heard. He was charging a lot of money from them. He was also threatening them. The men and the women were supposed to work all the time. So it was uh, quite bizarre. That very night, we did a surprise inspection of the shelter home. You knocked on the door, and what what happened? The door was open. The environment was very bad. There were just two rooms, so many people forced to live in that room. And when we went in, we thought that we are rescuing one couple. But everybody who was there, they screamed, they shouted, they just told us that somehow just get us out. She then calls the police, and each of the commandos is taken to the local police station. 
In our reporting for the Love Commandos podcast series, we collected stories from at least 30 people who stayed at the shelter over the years. Many of them alleged that the commandos demanded money from them and withheld important documents they needed to start their lives as newlyweds. The trial against Sajdev and the commandos is ongoing, but they face six counts, including wrongful confinement, extortion, and criminal intimidation. Sajdev and the other Love Commandos deny all of these accusations. As for Akanksha and Surya, the newlyweds we met at the top who escaped to the shelter, they still call Sanjay Sachdev the respectful term Baba, grandfather. Baba is like God to me because he helped me at that moment when I have no one in my back. And even many couples who accuse Sachdev of exploiting them look back on their time in the shelter with something like nostalgia. Mansi Choksi is a writer and journalist and my co-host on our Rough Translation podcast series. She's got a theory. It's probably the only time in their entire life where it's going to be just them alone. They're in this like zone at the shelter where they can actually nurture and hone their relationship, get to know each other. This is, this is a gift that um, uh, most people that enter arranged marriage don't get. Mansi says that in a country where couples are told that love marriage is a selfish act, the very existence of the love commandos offers an alternative that choosing one's own beloved is morally right and worthy of protection. Since the raid, every couple that stayed in the shelter has had to figure out their own new relationship to their family. Akanksha was cut off by her own parents, but her husband's mom took her in and even threw her a wedding. Family is happy and uh, now she says there is no need to play hide and seek anymore. All five episodes of Love Commandos from Rough Translation are available now. Listen to the series from beginning to end wherever you get your podcasts. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.50 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Some Massachusetts doctors are testing a way to warn patients on summer days that are hot enough to be dangerous to their health. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Idalia is nearing landfall along Florida's Gulf Coast as a major Category 3 hurricane. Forecasters say the storm is heading for the state's Big Bend area north of Cedar Key, where the peninsula meets the Panhandle. They're warning of catastrophic storm surge. Here's Governor Ron DeSantis. We have eight urban search and rescue teams staged, ready to go. 33 ambulance strike teams, 5,500 National Guardsmen. Uh, We also have the Coast Guard on standby uh, should that be necessary. 
Idalia's top sustained winds are 125 miles per hour. It's been fluctuating between a Category 3 and 4 storm this morning. The militaries of Russia and Ukraine launched missile and drone strikes at each other overnight. NPR's Brian Mann in Kyiv says Ukraine's capital city was hit. We heard the air raid sirens go off in the middle of the night, and then there were explosions over the city as the air defenses got working. And officials say this was the biggest attack here since spring. More than 20 missiles and drones intercepted. Two people were killed as shrapnel fell. We are also seeing Ukraine striking back more aggressively with reports of Ukrainian drones hitting overnight in a bunch of regions deep inside Russian territory. Two Russian military cargo planes were destroyed by Ukrainian attacks. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts Association of School Superintendents says a labor shortage is still affecting the search for school bus drivers. The group says it's a little better than last year, but as Nancy Cohn reports, districts in Central and Western Mass are still having a difficult time finding drivers. Berkshire Hills School Superintendent Peter Dillon says school bus drivers are critical partners. Not only do they transport kids safely, if a child's having a bad day, Dillon says, at times they'll alert school staff. But he says the company providing busing for his schools in Great Barrington, Stockbridge, and other towns has just enough drivers. We're getting by. We have just enough. But if drivers are sick or out, then the owner of the company's driving. Messini Bus Company, which serves the Berkshire Hills District, couldn't be reached for comment. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. The State Department of Children and Families is using apartments as emergency overnight shelters for young people. Officials say the apartments are meant for children with complex behavioral or health issues who can be hard to house elsewhere. They're located in Boston, New Bedford, and Springfield. The department says the children stay in the apartments for three nights at most. Critics tell the Boston Globe the plan raises safety concerns. There are now two confirmed human cases of West Nile virus in Massachusetts. The Massachusetts Department of Health says they're the first cases in the state this year. One of the two cases is from a woman in her 70s. She got the virus in another part of the country. The other is from a man in his 40s who was exposed in Middlesex County. Officials suggest wearing long sleeves and pants went outside to avoid mosquito bites. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. The Red Sox lost their third straight game last night. They fell to the Houston Astros 6-2 at Fenway. Boston's Adam Duvall hit his 18th home run of the year in the loss. The Sox will try to avoid a series sweep when the teams meet this afternoon. Tonight in Foxborough, the New England Revolution will host the New York Red Bulls. There's a good chance that cloudy skies will give way to showers and thunderstorms today. We'll have highs in the mid-70s. Tonight it clears a bit as temperatures fall to around 60. Tomorrow sunny with highs in the mid-70s. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. 
More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Americans sign up for a lot of monthly subscriptions these days. And new research shows they often keep paying, often long after they stop using the product or service. And if you've ever looked at your credit card bill and wondered, why am I still paying for that? You're in good company. NPR's Scott Horsley tells us more. Subscription-based businesses have been around for a long time, but thanks to the Internet, they've really ballooned in the last decade. Stanford economist Neil Mahoney says you can now sign up to buy everything from streaming television to razor blades, all by paying a monthly fee. I get coffee beans delivered from my favorite roaster in, in North Carolina by subscription. That is typically convenient, but I go on vacation and I have coffee piling up on my doorstep. And sometimes you don't even get that visual reminder that a subscription has overstayed its welcome. Last year, Mahoney signed up for NBC's Peacock streaming service so he could watch Premier League soccer on TV. When I signed up last fall, I intended to cancel at the end of the season in May. But of course, when it came to the summer, I I forgot to cancel and I realized, you know, I paid for three extra months. Mahoney and his colleagues wanted to figure out how often people are paying for subscriptions they no longer really want. Magazines or food delivery, they would cancel if given the opportunity, rather than just letting the monthly payments pile up on their credit card. They scrolled through millions of anonymous credit card records and discovered a kind of natural experiment. The aha moment for us was we realized that when your credit card expires, or you know, if you lose your credit card and get a new one in the mail, you're going to get an email from all of the companies where you have a subscription that says, can you log in again and update your payment information? And when that happens, when people have to make an active decision about whether to renew a subscription, they cancel four times as often as during other months. Sally Greenberg, who heads the National Consumers League, says that's why a lot of businesses don't ask. They just keep charging customers automatically, month after month. I'm sure I'm paying for things I shouldn't be paying for. And it's a cash cow for companies. Even when customers try to cancel, they sometimes run into roadblocks. Deb Shelby says when her home security system in Jericho, Vermont, stopped working, it took seven phone calls before the company finally stopped billing her. She's faced similar challenges canceling Internet service and a satellite TV network. Everything is all about profit, and they insist on making money on people who don't have the stamina to fight back. I actually have the stamina to fight back. It took me six months to get it done, but I think a lot of people just give up. The Federal Trade Commission gets thousands of complaints like this every year. The commission, which polices unfair and deceptive business practices, is considering a new rule that would require companies to make it as easy for customers to get out of a monthly subscription as it is to sign up. Businesses would also have to send customers an annual reminder. Some trade groups are fighting the proposed rule, saying it could stifle innovation and limit customers' choice. Some subscriptions do offer discounts, and economist Mahoney acknowledges it might be inconvenient if you had to actively renew every month. Still, he argues a periodic reminder, maybe every six months, could help to cut unwanted payments in half. There are some people who tend to be more financially organized. They may set reminders. And there are some people who are busy, have other things going on in their life, and they're more prone to making mistakes. 
Mahoney tries to be organized with his own finances, especially after doing this research, but now that a new soccer season's underway, he can't promise that he'll remember to cancel his streaming service once the last whistle has blown. If anybody should know this is a problem, it should be me, but I also, I think I understand myself, I will continue to overpay for things, but hopefully only overpay for a couple months and not for a couple years. Mahoney notes a new cottage industry has sprung up to help people comb through their credit card bills and stop unwanted payments. The service is usually marketed as a monthly subscription. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Venus Williams was on the court last night in Flushing Meadows, New York. The tennis legend was appearing in her 24th U.S. Open. She lost to Great Minnan, who is 26, but Minnan called Williams, who's 43, her childhood idol. And this week, the Open saw another rising tennis star assert her presence. 19-year-old Coco Goff was playing against Laura Siegmund in a first-round match on Monday. Goff felt her opponent was taking too much time between points. She argued with the chair umpire about it. And here's what's interesting here and what we want to talk about. If you listen, you can hear that the crowd was on her side. And this moment seemed to resonate with viewers, and we want to talk about why that might be. So we called Amira Rose Davis. She is an assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin, where she researches in race, gender, sports, and politics. Good morning. Good morning. So first of all, tell me your reaction when you saw the match. Which Goff ultimately won? She did. I was mostly proud that she battled back. She dropped the first set, and Sigmund was playing a really great first set. And of course, that moment with the umpires, I think, just a sign of her maturity and the way that she was able to advocate for herself. She actually was growing frustrated about it, but didn't say anything for a while. And so my first reaction was really about the tennis. It really wasn't until later that you started to see that there was a kind of visceral reaction as clips started going viral from the match. And I was interested in that because in social media, for example, that a lot of people were drawing comparisons between Goff and Serena Williams. Why? Well, I think that you're looking at black women playing in a predominantly white sport of tennis on center court and Arthur Ashe at the U.S. Open. Serena Williams, of course, in 2018 had a very famous altercation with Carlos Ramos, the umpire in her match with Naomi Osaka, which was a very kind of viral moment. She was very frustrated, of course, and got those violations called against her. But I think that a lot of people were also responding to the crowd supporting Coco, which felt like a flip of a scenario of years of crowds who have not been as welcoming to Black girls in the sport. But I think that the U.S. Open and Arthur Ashe in particularly has always been a place that has really gotten behind U.S. stars, particularly Serena Williams and now the kind of heir apparent Coco Goff and other up-and-coming rising stars. So the umpire did eventually penalize Laura Siegmund for a time violation. Do you think that Goff's objection made a difference or the crowd's reaction for that matter? Well, I think that it certainly put it on her radar to call it. But I do want to point out that three years ago at the French Open, this very referee and Laura Siegmund had another altercation over a time violation. Time violation calls are constantly happening in tennis that players are disagreeing with. And for a player like Siegmund who does play slower, this isn't actually new. And her history with this umpire was part of what made this so frosty because she was already irritated from three years ago when she got caught game 
a warning for a time violation by the same umpire. So I think it would eventually have been called, but Coco was very frustrated that it hadn't been called sooner. And her advocation certainly sped up and put it on the radar and made it much harder for the umpire to continue to ignore. Amira Rose Davis is assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR on a Wednesday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, we hear about efforts to protect unhoused people in Florida as the state braces for the impact from Hurricane Adalia. Cloudy in mid-70s today with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms throughout the day, making it a dark and stormy first day of school for kids in Canton, Beverly, Andover, and Malden. Tonight's skies start to clear and it falls to the low 60s. Tomorrow, sunny and back to the mid-70s. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice, opening September 2nd. Learn more at PEM.org. And Lesley University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Lesley University. Invest in your passion at lesley.edu. Boston-based Ginkgo Bioworks plans to use artificial intelligence to help discover and develop new drugs. To do so, the biotech is entering into a five-year deal with Google worth nearly $290 million. Ginkgo plans to use Google's cloud computing and AI modeling to help it create its own generative artificial intelligence. Company leaders say they hope it'll help make biology easier to engineer. Brown University's medical school is the latest to end its participation in the U.S. News and World Report's education rankings. Officials with the Warren Alpert Medical School say the rankings do not align with university values. Harvard's med school pulled its participation from the rankings earlier this year. The toad in Porter Square could soon be under new ownership. The Cambridge Club is currently under agreement to be sold for $3 million. Under the deal, the space will remain a music venue. The sale also includes the adjacent Christopher's Restaurant, which closed during the pandemic. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. A crackdown in Saudi Arabia against online critics has intensified. A Saudi court recently sentenced a man to death in connection with views he expressed in tweets. Human rights advocates say he barely had any followers. NPR's Aya Batrawi joins us now from Dubai. Uh, what can you tell us about this case and the man sentenced to be executed? So Saudi human rights activists say this appears to be the harshest punishment handed down yet by a Saudi court because of tweets and online expression. So the people I spoke with, they say Mohammed Al-Ramdi is a retired teacher in his mid-50s and a father of seven. He's been detained now for a year and was held in solitary confinement for months. And Human Rights Watch says he had two anonymous accounts on X, then known as Twitter, and these accounts had just 10 followers. 
And apparently some of these tweets in which he spoke out against government corruption were presented in court as evidence of his alleged crimes. Al-Ghamdi can appeal the sentencing. His brother Saeed Al-Ghamdi, though, thinks this case is actually meant to target him. He's a well-known Islamic scholar and runs a Saudi human rights group from exile in the UK. When I reached him by phone, he said Saudi authorities have tried to coerce him to move back to Saudi Arabia, even offering him money. So Saeed says he has no plans of going back because he doesn't um, want to be silenced. I know this isn't the first uh, case of Saudi courts punishing people for what they post on social media, but um, how common is this? It is hard to know the full scope because a lot of these trials happen behind closed doors and the relatives of the defendants, even their lawyers, um, they're wary about speaking out. And the Saudi government also doesn't typically comment on these cases. And when officials do, they usually will say the courts are independent or they say, look, we're reforming the system as a whole and it takes time. But just in the past couple of years, we've seen prison sentences ranging from 20 to more than 40 years because of online posts. And one of the main courts trying these cases is the Specialized Criminal Court in Riyadh. And this is the court that issued Al-Ghamdi's verdict. This court was established originally to try terrorism cases, but it's also been used to prosecute government critics. And what prosecutors argue is that these posts online that are critical of Saudi Arabia's king and crown prince violate counterterrorism laws and cybersecurity laws because they pose a threat to national security and can destabilize society. So speaking of the crown prince, uh, we've also seen him push through some big reforms, uh, such as allowing women to drive and lifting bans on concerts and movie theaters, things that uh, used to be unthinkable. Can you explain how this crackdown fits in with that? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt these moves are overhauling life in Saudi Arabia, but that also makes them extremely sensitive to push through. Um, but activists like Lina Al-Hadloul, whose high-profile sister Lujain was arrested after calling for women's rights, says change does not have to cost people their right of expression. If you want to reform the country, we do it with civil society. You cannot you know, impose change. You, you, and if you're truly reforming the country, you do it with the people. You do it in a way where you don't make people more angry about the situation in the country. But Saudi Arabia is an absolute monarchy, and it appears the overriding message in silencing critics is that change is not going to be the result of public pressure. That's NPR's Aya Batrawi in Dubai. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, the latest on the soccer scandal in Spain caused by Spain's Women's World Cup coach kissing one of the players without her consent. It's 7.49. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Forecasters predict Hurricane Adalia will make landfall in Florida within the next hour, bringing dangerous storm surge along with it. A former Proud Boys leader will be sentenced today for his role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And Russian officials are accusing Ukraine of launching the largest drone attack on Russian soil since the war began 18 months ago. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Mid-70s today with cloudy skies and a good chance of showers and thunderstorms throughout the day. Low 60s tonight and some clouds start to move out, making way for sunny skies tomorrow. It'll be back in the mid-70s. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same day and next day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This summer, New England didn't see the kind of heat waves that gripped other parts of the nation and the world. But even moderately hot days can have an impact on our health, for some more than others. An innovative pilot project is trying to address this by sending heat alert emails to health clinics in seven states, including Massachusetts. WBUR's Martha Biebinger explains as part of Beyond Normal, our series with the New England News Collaborative. In Boston, the first heat alert popped into inboxes on June 1st. It was 83 degrees that day, still not hot enough to trigger an official heat warning. But in Boston, when temperatures rise past the mid-70s, heat-related hospitalizations and deaths rise too. Dr. Rebecca Rogers, a primary care physician at Cambridge Health Alliance, says it's particularly dangerous early in what doctors call the heat season. People are quite vulnerable because their bodies haven't yet adjusted to heat. For Rogers, that first email, and another that arrived as temperatures rose in July, bumped heat to the forefront of her conversations in the exam room. And the emails suggest Rogers prioritize heat planning with specific patients. Older individuals, outdoor workers, individuals with chronic medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or chronic kidney disease. Also young athletes training on sweltering fields and people without air conditioning. Okay. You go straight through that. Her patient, Luciano Gomez, works construction. If you were getting too hot at work and maybe starting to get sick, do you know some things to look out for? No. So Rogers describes signs of heat exhaustion, dizziness, weakness, and sweating a lot. She hands Gomez some tip sheets she got with the email alerts. On one, a color band from pale yellow to dark gold is a sort of urine hydration barometer. So if your pee is dark like this, during the day when you're at work, probably means you need to drink more water. An interpreter translates into Portuguese for Gomez, who's from Brazil. He knows heat, but he has questions about staying hydrated. Because here I've been addicted to soda. I'm trying to change to sparkling water, but I don't have too much knowledge on how much I can take of it. Yeah. Sparkling water, you know, it's fine. As long as it doesn't have sugar, it's totally good. Rogers has her own questions. Should patients taking meds that make them pee more often take less of the drug when it's hot? There's no firm answer yet. And Rogers knows that being unable to cool down overnight can trigger a health crisis. But she isn't sure how to help patients who cannot afford an air conditioner or who don't have stable housing. Heat is the leading cause of death from natural hazards in the United States. 
This is Dr. Caleb Dresser, one of the people who sends the alerts. And it is set to be an increasing problem in the years to come as a result of climate change. Dresser works out of Harvard's Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment. Weather expertise comes from Climate Central, an independent source of climate science. Staff at 12 community health centers around the country are receiving alerts tailored to their location. In Portland, Oregon, for example, an early heat wave triggered an alert on May 14th. For the rest of the summer, alerts will only go out on the most excessively hot and humid days, so they don't become too routine. Andrew Pershing is with Climate Central. So what we're just trying to say is, like, you really need to go into heat mode now. Pershing and colleagues are tweaking the language of alerts this summer, looking for messages that will change behavior. Because studies show many people don't take heat warnings seriously. Ashley Ward studies heat policy at Duke and says that has to change. This is not your grandmother's heat. So we have to accept that our environment has changed. This might very well be the coolest summer for the rest of our lives. The pilot has limitations. Most clinicians are only discussing heat with patients who have appointments. They don't have a way to flag their higher-risk patients or send them individual alerts at home. That's one possible improvement researchers may explore before next summer rolls around. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. We'll have more stories on the changing climate of New England all this week here on Morning Edition. You can also check it out at WBUR.org. Each year, thousands of people try to hike the Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine, but only about a quarter finish. So when people get to the halfway point in Pennsylvania, they celebrate by eating a half gallon of ice cream. WITF's Rachel McDevitt has this report. (laughs) Hikers are getting hyped up at the Pine Grove Furnace General Store, waiting for a fresh delivery of ice cream. So when it comes... Gotta look at the ice cream. Look at it come by. You are the man. I'm going to hold the door for you. Hold on. The delivery man is basically a celebrity. Inside the store, hikers jostle around the freezers. Alan Dwyer, who goes by Lego Man on the trail, is wearing a camo bucket hat and a black kilt. He double takes when he hears the record for the half gallon challenge. Three minutes and 37 seconds. I'll do the challenge, but I'm not killing myself. Outside on the porch, Dwyer digs in. He's hiked 1,100 miles to get here, so this is a big moment. Absolutely. Probably more the the symbolism than the ice cream, to be honest. Yvette Vernia, a dark-haired woman with bright freckles whose trail name is Milkweed, is mixing up an improvised <laughs> orange creamsicle. You gotta have a good flavor combo because it is just an exorbitant amount of food in one sitting to even attempt. Neil Happy Feet Postal, a wiry 24-year-old, is already nearing success, but feeling the effects. Um, I felt better, honestly. I was feeling pretty ill after the first one and a half quarts, uh, but I just kind of sat down and smoked a couple cigarettes and I felt fine. It's a warm day and Dwyer's bushy brown beard is dripping with cream. The maple walnut flavor reminds him of growing up in New Hampshire. One of my wonderful childhood memories is getting sap from trees. Young me would order maple walnut. walnut. My spoon just broke in half. There's no video of this. He pauses, then grips his new, smaller spoon. Uh, I will persist. Um. Each hiker has their own motivation for this trek. 
For Fernia, it's about setting an example for her eight-year-old son. And I think the biggest thing I always got from adults as a kid was not what they would tell you, but the things that you saw them do. So the things that you saw them do that, that seemed extraordinary, like they were superheroes. Like, I'd want him to be proud of me. I want to be proud of me. Dwyer has been writing Hike the Appalachian Trail on his list of personal goals every year for the last 14. He says the hike is shifting his perception of what he really needs. Already this far, I wish I had taken more pictures of people and less pictures of the views. One of the trail tautologies is the views will always be there, the people won't, so take more pictures of people. A thousand miles lies between this ice cream in Pennsylvania and the end of the trail in Maine. But for now, there's no rush. This moment is for the hikers, not the hike. For NPR News, I'm Rachel McDevitt at the midpoint of the Appalachian Trail. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. I'm executive editor for news, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Hurricane Adalia has made landfall in Florida, bringing catastrophic storm surge and devastating winds to that state's Gulf Coast. It's Wednesday, August 30th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, advocates for unhoused people in Florida are scrambling to find them shelter as the state begins to feel Adalia's impact. Plus, sentencing today for the former chairman of the right-wing group, the Proud Boys. He was convicted of seditious conspiracy in the January 6 attack on the Capitol. Also, we look at why there's widespread support for the Democratic governor running for re-election in heavily Republican Kentucky. My number one overall goal is just to be the best governor I can be for all Kentuckians, regardless of party. In sports, Red Sox lose, cloudy with showers today in the 70s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. Hurricane Adalia has made landfall along Florida's Gulf Coast. In the past hour, sustained wind speeds decreased slightly, downgrading it to a Category 3 storm. But storm surge and catastrophic flooding remain a serious threat to communities. Elliot Trateau of member station WUFT reports hospitals in Florida are ready to receive a possible influx of patients. Hospitals in North Central Florida are preparing for what could be a lot of patients with storm-related injuries. Matt Shannon is an emergency physician with the University of Florida. He says it's happened with every hurricane affecting the area. In his experience, the wave of patients comes not during the hurricane, but after. Most people will have the good sense to stay home and button down the hatches. It's, uh, we tend to get large emergency department volumes the day after those storms pass through. He says to take precautions, like wearing eye protection during post-storm cleanup. For anyone riding out the storm, he says to use common sense, wait for it to blow over, and if you have a small injury, take care of it at home. But if it's a major injury, call 911. For NPR News, I'm Elliot Trito in Gainesville. 
Today, President Biden is expected to announce $95 million in federal assistance to improve Hawaii's power grid and strengthen its ability to withstand future disasters. Devastating wildfires claimed the lives of at least 115 people on Maui earlier this month. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is wrapping up talks in China. Raimondo is the latest Biden administration official to visit China in a bid to ease tense trade relations. Secretary Raimondo spoke to reporters in Shanghai today. I explained very clearly that as a Commerce Secretary, it's my job to both protect what we must, to protect our technology, and to promote where we can. A new Gallup survey shows labor unions remain popular in the U.S. NPR's Andrea Hsu reports. The survey actually found public approval of unions has fallen a few percentage points from a year ago. It's now at 67 percent, which is still higher than it's been for most of the past half century. Support for union workers also appears strong. 72 percent of respondents said they sympathize more with Hollywood writers than with Hollywood studios. 75 percent said they'd side with the United Auto Workers over the auto companies. At the same time, a sizable minority of people question what good unions do. One out of three said unions mostly hurt the U.S. economy. The survey results come as healthcare workers at Kaiser Permanente and auto workers have threatened to strike if their demands are not met. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. Former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio is expected to be sentenced today for his role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. You're listening to NPR News. As Hollywood writers and actors continue to strike against major studios, visual effects artists at Walt Disney Pictures have filed to become members of the Production Workers Union. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports. Disney's artists are responsible for having created the visual effects in such movies as Lion King, Pirates of the Caribbean, and Aladdin. Now 18 in-house visual effects workers at Disney have signed authorization cards to join IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. The union already represents camera operators, editors, hair and makeup artists, costumers, prop masters, and other production workers. The Disney workers follow visual effects artists at Marvel Studios, who are now voting to become unionized, a first for the film industry. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News. A rare blue supermoon will brighten the night sky this evening. The moon won't actually appear blue. Blue moon is the term for the second full moon in a single month. The blue moon will also be a supermoon because of how close it'll be to Earth, making the moon look extra big and bright. One point of some concern, however, the closeness of the moon tonight will mean higher tides and could worsen storm surge from Hurricane Idalia, now a Category 3 storm that has made landfall along the coast along the the coast of Florida's Big Bend region. Storm surge is of major concern. Sustained winds are topping 120 miles per hour now. I'm Kristen Wright, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
Later today, Boston City Councilors will take up Mayor Michelle Wu's proposal to ban tents from the party, part of the city known as Mass and Cass. The mayor has said she's concerned about the rise in violence near the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. She says tents are helping conceal criminal activity. City Council President Ed Flynn says he supports allowing police to remove tents and other temporary structures after the city gives notice and offers shelter to people who are displaced. Massachusetts's public health commissioner is one of the first gay or bisexual men to donate blood in the state in decades. Dr. Robbie Goldstein rolled up his sleeve yesterday following a change in federal policy. WBUR's Priyanka Dale-McCuskey reports the policy banned donation from men who have sex with men over fears about HIV. Goldstein says he wanted to donate blood, but as a gay man, he couldn't. Blood supplies have been incredibly low all across the country. They still are very low. And I want to give back, and now finally I can. Goldstein pushed federal officials to lift restrictions, including when he worked at the CDC with former director Rochelle Walensky. On Tuesday, they gave blood together at the Red Cross in Dedham. Policy can take a long time. But if you continue to go back to the science, you go back to the data that we have, and you keep pushing, things can happen. The new federal guidelines screen donors based on their risk of HIV, not their sexual orientation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCleskey. The opioid overdose reversal nasal spray Narcan will be available on store shelves in the coming days. The company that makes Narcan says it'll begin shipping supplies today. That follows an announcement yesterday from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts that it'll offer Narcan at no cost to its members. Dr. Greg Harris is the senior medical director for mental health with Blue Cross. What we didn't want to see is our members pick up the -the over-the-counter version and be paying more for it than they would if they went to the pharmacy. And so the policy we had is to try to align that and um, not have it be a financial disincentive. The State Department of Public Health reported more than 2,300 confirmed and estimated overdose deaths from opioids last year. That's a new high. State leaders will take a tour of the Sumner Tunnel today ahead of its reopening. It's scheduled to reopen in time for the Friday morning commute. The link between East Boston and downtown has been closed for nearly two months for a reconstruction project. There will be some weekend closures later this year, and the tunnel will be shut down again next summer. It's 808. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. The Red Sox lost to the Houston Astros 6-2 last night at Fenway Park. The teams will play again this afternoon. Cloudy today with a chance for showers or storms. It'll be in the upper 70s, clear overnight with temperatures in the 50s, sunny tomorrow, and and in the 70s, it should stay dry through the holiday weekend. It's 69 degrees right now in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. 
And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. There's been yet another military takeover in Africa, the eighth in three years, this time in Gabon. Early this morning, a group of senior military officials in the Central African country declared on state television that they had seized power. Now, the announcement came shortly after the Electoral Commission declared that President Alibango Odimba had won a controversial third term, which the opposition called a sham. The president's whereabouts and condition not clear, and very few details are emerging out of the country where the Internet has been largely cut since the vote on Saturday. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu joins us now from Lagos. Emmanuel, very fast-moving situation. What more can you tell us though, about what happened last night? Yes, exactly. You know, there's celebrations of hundreds of people in the capital, Libreville, out in the streets, you know, hugging soldiers. In the last few minutes, soldiers have actually said that the president, Ali Bongo, is under house arrest, along with his family and medical staff. His son has been arrested for treason. And the head of the presidential guard appears to have played a key role. He's been declared president on state TV. That's uh, General Bryce Oligi Nguema. And all of this started early this morning um, with an image we've become used to. You know, soldiers on state television declaring military takeover. But this situation is different to many of the recent coups that have happened in Western Central Africa. And, and, and actually, it's different in a way that is probably more troubling for the rest of the region. You know, the elections in Gabon were problematic in, in a way that's not too dissimilar to elections we've seen elsewhere. Uh, there's been an internet blackout for days, although that's just been restored. And, and that fed a suspicion that the government was basically cooking the results. You know, there's deep antipathy towards the president, Ali Bongo. He took over from his father in 2009, who himself had been in power for 40 years. And Ali Bongo had installed his son into a key position and was likely to succeed him. So people in Gabon have had, basically have had kleptocratic rule by a single family for a lifetime. Now, all of this happened just minutes after the Gabonese election center announced that Bongo had won the election. Probably the timing wasn't an accident. Exactly. You know, the polls this time, like previous ones, had several problems. International observers were prevented from monitoring, actually even from entering the country. You know, people reported irregularities. So it was no surprise really to see Ali Bongo had won by a huge margin. And, and many people concluded that the results, in a sense, were its own kind of coup and that this was a stolen mandate. It kind of feels like a trend, though, Emmanuel. I mean, latest uh, Niger. Um, wondering, though, Gabon, does, does it face the same challenges some of those other countries are facing in terms of Islamist insurgencies and things like that? Well, the situation in Gabon is different. There's no threat of armed groups like in the Sahel and, and West Africa. And dynamics behind the coup in Niger last month is, are different to the dynamics in Gabon. But the crisis of trust in government, you know, that people in Gabon feel uh, are going to resonate across all the former Fre- French colonies in West and Central Africa that have had coups. And maybe even more so in countries like Cameroon and Togo that have had, haven't had coups yet. Um, and, you know, these are countries that have been ruled by one family since independence, basically. And Gabon has vast oil reserves, but 40% unemployment. And, you know, this is a region with many young people, but very, very few opportunities. That's NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu in Lagos. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. We spent a lot of time recently debating the future of artificial intelligence and the way it may be used to manipulate and manage people. Our co-host Steve Inskeep spoke with someone who says the future is now. 
Ifama Ajinwa wrote a book called The Quantified Worker. She says employers have spent generations trying to reduce their employees to statistics. They've gained more power to do this in recent decades using computers, and they've gained even more power in recent years with artificial intelligence. She's been following this trend since long before AI caught the world's imagination in recent months. I have thought to myself, it is already everywhere. People just have not been paying attention. And I also think that the conversation has been hijacked a bit by AI doomsday scenarios, right, of this far off horizon when AI becomes sentient. And the fact is, we now have AI that's being used as tools by humans to quantify workers in the workplace. And we need to pay attention to that because that's happening already now. Well, let's talk about some of the ways that this is happening according to your research. Maybe we could start with hiring. How is artificial intelligence being used in hiring? Well, AI technologies are being used as part of automated hiring platforms. So it runs the gamut from simple AI systems that just parse your resume. So just searching for keywords in your resume to the extreme end of automated video interviewing. And that's when humans are actually really being interviewed by AI. Which makes a judgment as to whether this person is the right kind of person we want to hire. So yes, AI technologies are being deployed to make these consequential decisions about access to employment. Well, if somebody gets past the artificial intelligence gatekeeper and gets a job, they may encounter AI in the workplace, according to your writing. Use a phrase I hadn't seen before, a mechanical manager. What is a mechanical manager? So for me, that's what I'm calling these AI technologies in the workplace. It's really the idea that we're now delegating functions in the workplace that we previously thought could only be done by a human, we're now delegating it to AI technologies. So productivity applications, for example, are being used to quantify how productive a worker is and really to distill that productivity to numbers. So those productivity applications can count, for example, how many keystrokes someone is typing per hour in the workplace. They can count how many emails you've sent per day they can even track how many conversations you've had with your fellow co-workers. Are you saying this technology gives an employer more power of surveillance? Yes, uh, certainly. These technologies have been referred to perhaps tongue-in-cheek as bossware, right? Because these technologies basically enable your boss to watch over your shoulder at all times without necessarily being physically present. So consider that productivity apps can track you whether you're in the workplace or whether you're working from home or whether you're working on an airplane even. What are you hearing from workers about this? Well, I'm hearing a lot of concern. You know, one worker shared with me that he felt that he was discriminated against during the automated video interviewing because although he spoke English fluently, English was not his first language, and so the AI system had trouble with his diction. The AI system then greeted him poorly for that. There's also the issue of productivity apps or surveillance apps being misused by employers in the service of discrimination or harassment. So one particular case in California was a woman who found out that actually her productivity app was being used by her supervisor to track her over the weekend when she was supposed to be off work. Hmm. Because even though she had turned off the app, the app could never be turned off. So the, the manager was actually using this to track her and then was harassing her and telling her things about her personal life. 
Um, so there is a lot of concern that because there is really no regulation guiding how employers can use these technologies, there is ripe opportunity for misuse. It's easy to see the case for how this technology could be abused to harass someone, as you just described. But you've also twice referred to discrimination, which maybe some people have a little harder uh, time conceiving because they might think of the machine as an inanimate object and objective. What is the way in which a computer becomes a racist? There's actually a word for this, and it's called automation bias. We tend to see automated processes as less prone to bias themselves. But that's not actually true. You have to remember that it is still human beings that are coding these AI processes, and even the way that they are trained is a result of human decision-making of which training data to feed them. If you think of a company that has historically excluded women or historically excluded minorities, then the available training data for any automated hiring system for that company is not going to include that demographic. So then your automated hiring system is going to learn with a limited training data and will then replicate the same patterns you're trying to fight against. I guess this makes me wonder about the larger question. Can a system like that be fixed? Can it be done right? I think that is an important question. So part of what I push for in my book is the proposal that there should be a federal mandate for the auditing of automated hiring systems, because that's the way we're going to surface whatever bias that they have. And then I would advocate that companies should then be giving safe harbor, so a period of time during which they may fix the problems without necessarily being liable. How would you respond to somebody who feels that this is going too fast to control already? 99% of us have to work for a living. We don't have a choice on that matter. So it behooves the government to ensure that access to employment is fair, is equal opportunity, and it behooves the government to also ensure that the experience of the workplace is not one of subordination and domination, but one that allows individual workers to flourish and reach their full potential. Ifama Ajinwa is the author of The Quantified Worker, Law and Technology in the Modern Workplace. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Senator Elizabeth Warren has just returned from a trip to Ukraine where she spoke with that country's president. She'll join me to share her impressions. It's 820. Yes, it's scary. It can cause destruction and loss of life. And there's reasons to be scared of it. But fire is not bad or good. It just is. 
But people make choices about where to live and how to rebuild after a fire. More than ever, communities are asking how to rebuild with resilience after your world has burned down. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A chance of showers and thunderstorms throughout the day today, otherwise cloudy with a high near 74. The National Weather Service still has a high surf advisory in effect for the waters along the Cape Islands and South Coast. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low around 60. Tomorrow, sunny with a high back around 74. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at HintWater.com. From Mattress Firm, whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. In Spain, an uproar about sexism in sports. Yeah, prosecutors there investigating the head of Spain's soccer federation after he forcibly kissed one of the country's top women's soccer players. NPR's Laurel Wamsley has been following the story, and she is with us now. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so for people who didn't catch this, this started just after Spain's team made history and won its first ever Women's World Cup. Take it from there. What happened next? Well, during the medal ceremony, Spain's football federation chief, Luis Rubiales, was congratulating the player, Jenny Hermoso. He pulls her into this tight hug and then grabs her head with his hands and kisses her on the mouth. All of this was broadcast live around the world. Video also showed him making a crotch-grabbing gesture after Spain won as he stood in the dignitaries box just a few feet away from the Queen of Spain. The criticism was immediate, and Rubiales claimed the kiss was mutual, but he asked Hermoso for a little kiss, and she said yes. But Hermoso says that conversation never happened, she never consented, and she did not like it. She said in a statement that she was vulnerable and the victim of a sexist act. I have to say, I saw this myself when I was watching the, the end of the match, and I just had a hard time believing what I was seeing, all right? So what has been the fallout? Well, Rubiales still has a job, but it is extremely tenuous. Many thought he would resign last week at an emergency meeting of Spain's soccer federation, but he refused to. Uh, the entire Spanish team that just won the World Cup, plus another 50 players, put out a statement saying they will not play for Spain until Rubiales is out. FIFA, meanwhile, has suspended him pending an investigation. And then the government of Spain is working on multiple fronts in this case. There's a sports court that could declare Rubiales unfit to hold office, and there's also also a separate investigation by federal prosecutors into whether Rubiales has committed a crime of sexual aggression. So does, does Rubiales have any support in all this? Not much. Certainly the most vocal of his supporters has been his mother, who announced that she has gone on hunger strike due to what she called the inhumane hounding of her son. Um, and initially it seemed that Rubiales had a lot of support at the Federation. When he gave that speech last week, refusing to resign, he was applauded by many in the Federation, including the coaches of Spain's men's and women's national teams. But as the backlash has grown, those coaches eventually released statements condemning him. Um, and now Spain's Federation itself is calling for him to step down. They're citing unacceptable behavior 
behaviors that have seriously damaged the image of Spanish football, and they're promising structural reforms. And for the Federation, it is crucial to get this issue sorted. The country is bidding to co-host the 2030 World Cup, and their reputation has certainly been tarnished in all of this. But I have to say that this feels bigger than soccer now. It seems like this has touched a nerve in Spain. Why is that? Absolutely. Gender issues and women's rights have been a big topic in Spain in recent years. They sort of had their own Me Too movement there, and it's culminated in new laws protecting the right to abortion and women's equality in the workplace. It's also important to note that there was already turmoil in this team, even before the World Cup. Last year, 15 of Spain's top players said they would refuse to play for the women's coach, Jorge Vilda. And the players are now saying, see, this is what we were talking about. And it seems many people in Spain are saying, wow, this is bad. This has got to change. Over the last week, hundreds of protesters have gathered in the streets of Madrid. They're waving red cards and calling for Rubiales to resign. And there's a couple of hashtags that have uh, attached themselves to this movement, too. One is Contigo Jenny, we're with you, Jenny, and Se Acabo, it's over. That is NPR's Laurel Wamsley. Laurel, thank you. You're welcome. We often talk about how polarized national politics has become, but what people may not focus on is just how partisan state politics has gotten, with one party controlling all branches of government. There are a few notable exceptions to that. For instance, Kentucky, where a popular Democratic governor running for re-election this year has consistently ranked high in the polls, despite Republicans sweeping other state and national races. But as Louisville Public Media's Sylvia Goodman reports, popularity does not always equate to power. Kathy Johnson, a Democrat, spends her time knocking on doors in her part of far northeastern, deep-red Kentucky, talking about divisive issues like abortion and inflation. I've had people talk to me about that this country has just gone to a hell in a handbasket. They want to blame President Biden for everything that's gone wrong. But even her neighbors who support Trump are willing to consider re-electing a Democrat, Andy Bashir, for governor. When he first got into office, the tornado hit in western Kentucky, then the pandemic hit, and then the floods hit. He has brought us through so much. Bashir is well-liked in the state, even as President Biden's popularity stays consistently low among Kentuckians. Nationally, the phenomenon of the crossover governor, where the governor's party is different from the one the state chose for president, is growing rarer and rarer. Since 2007, the number of crossover governors has fallen from 21 to only nine. Everything's becoming a little more bland. That's J. Miles Coleman, a professor at the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. If you're a governor, you know, you stay in the state. You have perhaps more opportunities to... Um, define your own local brand. You're kind of closer to the people. And that's been true for Bashir. He's largely distanced himself from national political agendas. And that's a message he's hammered home on the campaign trail. There are no red or blue bridges, and a job isn't Democrat or, or Republican. My number one and overall goal, uh, provided I win re-election, is just to be the best governor I can be for all Kentuckians, regardless of party. But infrastructure isn't controversial. When it comes to the big-ticket social issues like gender-affirming care for minors and abortion, Bashir takes a stand, but his vetoes are overruled by the Republican supermajority legislature. What does that mean to his constituents? Democrats know that he tried, and Republicans know his veto isn't a threat at the end of the day. And that dynamic is a hallmark of the crossover governor, says Ann Sismar, a professor of political science at Eastern Kentucky University needs to have to sort of claim to a Democratic base of voters. Look, these are the things that I believe and these are the things that I support. 
but then it leaves him with basically a record of less controversial things to run on. Which could help Bashir win over Republican voters. But, Sismar warns, People tend to revert back to their party affiliation when they're voting come November. So I expect that the race will tighten. No one knows that better than Bashir himself, who won in 2019 by just 5,000 votes. For NPR News, I'm Sylvia Goodman in Louisville, Kentucky. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We hear about efforts to protect unhoused people in Florida as the state feels the impact from Hurricane Idalia. It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Idalia has come ashore along Florida's Gulf Coast as a major Category 3 storm. It made landfall less than an hour ago in the state's Big Bend area near Keaton Beach. Millions of people evacuated ahead of the storm. Whitney Jones on Sanibel Island farther south did not. I didn't leave for Ian, and I'm not going to leave for this, so we'll just kind of hang out and take care of what we need to. Idalia's top sustained winds are still at 120 miles per hour. Lawmakers in Tennessee have ended their special session addressing gun violence without passing new laws. Rose Gilbert with member station WPLN says it was called after six people were shot to death at the Covenant School. Covenant parents have been at the Tennessee State Capitol throughout the special session, holding signs, wearing ribbons in school colors, and hoping for gun reform. For now, those hopes have been dashed. Mary Joyce is a member of the Covenant Families Action Fund, a nonprofit created by parents and school staff. My daughter was hunted at her school. As a mother, I'm going to have to look at my nine-year-old in the eye and tell her nothing. Our elected representatives have done nothing. The Covenant Families Action Fund will continue advocating for gun reform when the legislature reconvenes in January. For NPR News, I'm Rose Gilbert in Nashville. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The impact of Hurricane Adalia is being felt at Logan Airport this morning. 28 flights in and out of Boston have already been canceled. There are also nearly 40 flights that are delayed. Newton teachers are planning to boycott today's convocation on their first day back from summer vacation. The decision stems from an ongoing contract dispute with the city. Michael Zillis is president of the Newton Teachers Association. He says the superintendent of schools ordered them to be at the assembly, but teachers are refusing. That is in direct contradiction to the prior practice where staff of the Newton Public Schools were invited to attend the convocation. We're not going to attend under a directive. We're going to remain in our buildings in order to protest both the directive and the lack of a fair contract. Newton's superintendent says later in the week, a mediator will be meeting individually with the teachers union and school district officials in an effort to move contract talks forward. 
Eversource is warning customers that personal information may have been leaked in a data breach. The utility company says that info could include names, addresses, and contact details. It says there's no evidence bank accounts or Social Security numbers were leaked. Last week, National Grid sent a similar notice to customers. Both National Grid and Eversource used the same software that was compromised in a worldwide breach. It's 8:33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Make it three losses in a row for the Red Sox. They fell to the Houston Astros 6-2 last night at Fenway. They'll take on the Astros again this afternoon. And their soccer tonight in Foxborough, the New England Revolution, will host the New York Red Bulls. There's a good chance that cloudy skies will give way to showers and thunderstorms throughout the day today. We'll have highs in the mid-70s. Tonight it clears a bit as temperatures fall to around 60. Tomorrow sunny with highs in the mid-70s. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including performing arts organizations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Senator Elizabeth Warren is back from a visit to Ukraine. She and other U.S. senators met with President Volodymyr Zelensky to discuss how the U.S. can further aid the country amid its ongoing invasion by Russia. Senator Warren joins us live now. Good morning. Good morning. What's your biggest takeaway from your visit? That the people of Ukraine and the military in Ukraine are 100% committed in this fight. They are giving it everything they've got to beat back the Russian aggressors. Um, and, And they're in it all the way to save their country. And what did President Zelensky say about what his country needs from the U.S. to fight off the Russian invasion? They're very grateful for the help we've gotten from the United. They've gotten from the United States and from the NATO allies. And I want to give a shout out again to President Biden, who's helped pull an alliance together so that everyone is working in concert. Uh, obviously, President Zelensky wants that to continue. He wants to see the F-16 fighter jets. Uh, right now, the Ukrainians are launching a counteroffensive. They're making progress. It's slow, but it's steady. But they're having to do this on the ground with no air cover. And that is a really difficult challenge for the troops uh, and puts them at much greater risk. The casualties are high. But the Ukrainians are determined, and they continue to make progress. And I think here in, in the United States, we've got to support them in every possible way. The U.S. has agreed for U.S. fighter jets to be provided to Ukraine by other countries. Was President Zelensky asking for U.S. jets to come directly from the U.S.? Well, President Zelensky was delighted 
that now arrangements have been made mostly with Finland that the Ukrainians may be getting about 60 fighter jets. And also importantly, the U.S.'s job is going to be in part to help train the pilots and the crews. Remember for this, uh, you can't just jump in one of these planes and, and fly it straight into battle. It takes a lot of training and a lot of training to maintain the planes. And the U.S. is committed to be helpful in that. So that will be a part of our job here. As you lobby for these requests, how do you plan to respond to increasing calls from Republicans who say we should reduce our aid to Ukraine? Yeah, the Ukrainians are on the front lines fighting for democracy. They're fighting against an illegal Russian invasion and a Russia that has directly engaged in war crimes. You know, Vladimir Putin has now been charged internationally for kidnapping Ukrainian children. Um, Also, the Russians have been targeting civilians. Um, Understand this. The Ukrainians are fighting a war that obviously matters to Ukraine and the survival of its nation. But it also matters in a much larger sense for everyone else in the world, including the United States. And that is, are we going to push back? against this kind of Russian aggression? Are we willing to stand up, form a strong alliance, keep that alliance nurtured, and say to Russia, no, you have to respect boundaries? Because if we back off from that, Russia will take away the lesson that aggression pays off. And it won't just be Ukraine that pays, it will be more and more countries that pay. We are fighting the war now in Ukraine so that we don't have to fight it in coming years in other nations across Europe and even here in the U.S. Did this trip spur any thoughts for you about why the war in Ukraine should continue to matter to people here in Massachusetts? No, it matters partly because it's a test of who we are as a people. Are we really a people who say as long as they're not kidnapping our children, as long as as they're not targeting our civilians, as long as they're not executing our babies, our civilians, our old people, that somehow that's all right with the United States. That can't be who we are as a nation. I think it also matters because it matters about alliances and what it means to have friends in the world, friends that you know you can count on. You know, in the last administration, NATO was was under a lot of attack. And a lot of our NATO allies thought the U.S. is not going to be there internationally. President Biden has turned that around. And having alliances is what actually strengthens democracies. That's important for us here in Massachusetts, important for us in the U.S., and important for democracies all around the world. This is a big fight. And I mean that Big in the sense, not just militarily, but big in the sense of the issues at stake. We need to be strong in this fight, and we need to be strong allies of both the Ukrainian people and our allies around the world who are also in this fight against Russian aggression. Senator Elizabeth Warren, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And if anybody wants to talk more about this or anything else, I'm going to be in Needham tonight. We're going to do a town hall. Starts at 6 o'clock tonight, and I'd love to visit with anybody else who wants to talk. Thank you, Senator.
A former leader of the far-right extremist group, the Proud Boys, will appear for sentencing in federal court later this morning. Enrique Tarrio was convicted for seditious conspiracy and other crimes in May. This is all related to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. One of his lieutenants, Ethan Nordin, will also be sentenced today. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz will be in the courtroom later this morning, and she's here with us now. Good morning. Good morning. So could you just first walk us through what's going to happen in court today? Yeah, so the sentencing hearing for Enrique Tario will start today at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Tario is the former national chairman of the Proud Boys, and he's looking at a possible 33-year prison sentence. Ethan Nordin, a fellow member of the Proud Boys, is also going to be sentenced this afternoon. He's looking at around 27 years if the federal judge goes along with the prosecution's recommendations. And this is all for their role in a conspiracy to stop the certification of the 2020 election results in Congress and to keep Donald Trump in the White House. If Tario and Nordin get sentenced to more than two decades in prison, it will mark the most severe punishment given to any January 6th rioter. Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes was convicted of seditious conspiracy in a separate case back in May, and he received the longest sentence so far of 18 years. And, and all this follows a months-long trial earlier this year. Would you now walk us through how we got to this day? That's right. It's been a long road. The events that led to Tario and Nordine's conviction for seditious conspiracy goes back to January 6, 2021. Prosecutors say that the two men, along with other members of the Proud Boys, conspired to block the certification of the 2020 election results. What's interesting is that Tario wasn't even at the Capitol on January 6. He was arrested in Washington, D.C. days earlier for burning a local church's Black Lives Matter banner. His attorneys have tried to argue for a lighter sentence because of that. But prosecutors say he still directed Proud Boys to take over the Capitol building. Nordine was actually there that day and was involved in fights with police who were trying to protect the building. Prosecutors say Tario, Nordine, and others consider themselves foot soldiers of the right. And I understand that there was a hearing yesterday where some of the people, police officers who were attacked by the Proud Boys spoke. Can you just tell us a bit more about what happened there? Yeah, we heard from three police officers yesterday. Two of them were in the courtroom to address the court. They were U.S. Capitol Police Officer Shea Cooney and U.S. Capitol Police Inspector Thomas Boyd. Both officers got emotional during their fairly brief statement to the court. They talked about how they honestly didn't think they would make it through January 6, 2021 alive. According to court documents, Cooney had actually come face to face with Nordine during the riot. She said she and her other officers were beaten by rioters, many who claimed to support law enforcement. And hearing those voices really helped emphasize the pain and fear that officers felt that day and they're still dealing with. Once Tario and Nordine are sentenced today, what can we expect next? So there are three other defendants who were tried alongside Tario and Nordine who also await sentencing this week. They're facing between 20 to 30 years each. Other than that, we still have many other January 6th rioters who are awaiting their sentence in their own cases. That's NPR's Jacqueline Diaz. Jacqueline, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us how the Biden administration's plan to negotiate for lower Medicare prices for 10 popular prescription drugs may impact consumers.
Cloudy in mid-70s today. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms throughout the day. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 60s and skies start to clear, improving your chances of seeing the super blue moon. It's our second full moon of the month and it'll be huge in the sky. And it'll be the last chance to see one of those until the year 2036. Tomorrow, sunny and back to the mid-70s. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Last chance to visit, see art on both sides of the harbor. Closes September 4th, ICABoston.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Hurricane Adalia has arrived in Florida as a Category 4 storm with wind speeds of 130 miles an hour. Forecasters are expecting a storm surge in parts of the state's west coast. It's going to lead to widespread flooding. So how is the homeless population dealing with that? For answers, we turn now to Monica Alesnik of the Homeless Leadership Alliance of Pinellas, which assists unhoused people in the county that includes St. Petersburg and Clearwater. Monica, uh, what does the storm look like where you are right now? Um, hi, good morning. So we are still getting winds and rain, but what's most concerning right now is we are starting to see some flooding of streets. The northbound lane of one of our major bridges is currently closed, so we're uh, still feeling the effects, but certainly not the effects that we were expecting, so we're very grateful for that. For people that are unhoused in your area, um, have they have they been taken somewhere else, or, or what's what, what have you seen there? Absolutely. So we've seen um, our staff as well as other staff members from other providers. As soon as we see the storm start to come, we move into action and we start evacuating some of the shelters, the homeless shelters that are actually in lower levels and evacuations. A, we immediately work with Pinellas County to ensure that those are evacuated. They provide busing to do that. But we certainly have a large number of unsheltered that our providers are actively in advance of storm until it is not safe, actually, are out into the community getting people to shelters and providing information on safe places to go to weather the storm. Yeah, what a delicate balance, right? You want to keep your people safe, but you also want to try and save as many people, too. Absolutely. It is It is very dangerous. And so we, I've had many staff who have said, can I go out? And I said, well, we are closed. Please be safe. But we are in the business of protecting people. And compassion is what drives so many of my staff and staff of others within our community. But it is a very delicate balance. So we send lots of emails, update our social media consistently, and work with our county and municipalities to ensure that we are constantly getting the information out there to those who trust us. What is the degree of homelessness in Pinellas County? Well, sadly, Pinellas County has the second highest rate of homeless veterans in our country. And according to our most recent point in time count, which is a one-time count, it's a snapshot of homelessness. In the most recent school year, we had 3,768 children under the age of 18 with data provided to us from the school district that were homeless. We have 125 families on a shelter wait list, which is quite troublesome. These are families sleeping in their streets. We have a growing number of homeless people due to the economy, as well as the uh, housing conditions here in the, uh, Pinellas County and Tampa Bay area. 
And Monica, quickly, just a few seconds here. How close are you to a point where you just have to abandon trying to help anyone that's out there right now? Never. Um, We are definitely not at that place. I know the bridges to the barrier islands have been closed, but um, there are still areas out there that people will uh, be safe. And as soon as the wind clears a little, I know our staff will be out there, as are others, checking, ensuring our community members are safe. That's Monica Lesnick of the Homeless Leadership Alliance of Pinellas Counties. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on a new round of Russian airstrikes in Ukraine, plus a referendum in Australia on whether to recognize its indigenous people in the country's constitution for the first time. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. For thousands of years, people in North America relied on one animal. Buffalo was our lodging, our clothing, our food, tools, parts of our ceremonies. That's how we survive. The near extinction of the bison, or American buffalo, devastated many indigenous nations. Today, how one nation is bringing them back, on All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Hurricane Adalia has made landfall in Florida as a Category 3 storm with winds reaching up to 125 miles per hour. Soldiers in the central African country of Gabon have seized power and put the president under house arrest hours after he was declared winner of the election there. And the Biden administration is expected to roll out a new rule today that would make over three million more U.S. workers eligible for overtime pay. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the Huntington Theater kicking off their thrilling new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic, opening September 7th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. Cloudy in mid-70s today with a chance of showers all day. It's 69 degrees in Boston. A bid to make regional banks safer is making banks unhappy. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers comprehensive cybersecurity protection while automating cyber defense to stop threats so organizations can thrive. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. I'm David Brancaccio. Federal regulators want big banks, which aren't quite too big to fail, to take on more debt, $70 billion worth. While more debt for you and me might not necessarily improve our financial health, banking is different. It's an effort to strengthen regional banks and lower the risk they go bust, Silicon Valley Signature and First Republic Bank style. But the banking industry is generally unhappy with this. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here to explain. Right, David. And these rules do seem like quite the paradox. And regulators do think they, in fact, will fortify regional banks. These proposed rules already apply to so-called too-big-to-fail banks. So 
follow me on this. The key here is that this would be long-term debt that banks would need to take on. A bank borrows money, hangs on to it for a while, and if it gets into trouble, as in depositors suddenly start withdrawing funds, well, then the bank doesn't have to pay back its long-term debt. It gets to keep the money. This is known in the industry as a bail-in as opposed to a bail-out. It's a matter of who ends up holding the bill. And because creditors are taking on risk, they're theoretically more likely to keep tabs on a bank's finances. And in return, they get interest, a higher rate of return on their investment. And the banking industry doesn't like this. It does not. This is going to make it more expensive for banks to do business, surely. Interest rates are high right now. They have to borrow billions of dollars in this environment. The American Bankers Association called the proposals another step in the wrong direction and said it would harm customers, presumably because higher costs will be passed on to consumers. But the Federal Reserve counters that had these proposed rules been in place last spring, there would have been less of a risk that uninsured deposits could be lost. And that might have prevented bank runs, David. All right, Nova, thank you. Dow and S&P futures are each up a tenth of a percent. NASDAQ futures have also turned up by less than two-tenths percent. The 10-year benchmark interest rate down now at 4.12 percent. Economic growth April to June was revised up this morning from an annual rate of 2.1 percent to 2.4 percent. Gross domestic product doesn't necessarily correlate with well-being, but this confirms we were not in a recession this spring. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. The blood thinner Eliquis and the arthritis drug Enbrel are two of 10 medications the Biden administration is targeting as it works to negotiate lower prescription prices from pharmaceutical companies this year. The power to negotiate became law last year, and if costs do go down, patients would not see cheaper drugs until 2026. Drug companies say this could curb profits, which could curb their ability to pay for more research on new medicines. Drug company shareholders would also feel the pinch. Dan Gorenstein is host and executive editor of a health policy news organization called Tradeoffs. He's also a former reporter here at Marketplace, if the name is familiar. He spoke to my colleague, Nancy Marshall-Genzer. So, Dan, Medicare, the federal insurance program that covers some 65 million people, is one of the pharmaceutical industry's biggest customers. It spends north of $100 billion a year on medications. But until Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act last year, Medicare had never been able to directly negotiate drug prices. So what now? So Medicare just named its first targets, 10 of the highest cost drugs, First, those drug makers have to decide whether to belly up to the negotiating table, Nancy. If they refuse, they'll face huge fines. Then Medicare has this one big question. What is a fair price for these drugs? To answer that, they'll look at a whole bunch of data, how well these meds work, how much they cost to make, but they haven't said how they'll combine those ingredients to land their price. I loved how Steve Pearson, who heads up ICER, a kind of nonpartisan drug pricing think tank, described this. At least what Medicare has started out with sounds a little bit more like 
you take a pinch of this, a pinch of that, and you throw it in a blender and you see what happens. All told, Nancy, this new negotiation power is expected to save Medicare $100 billion over the next decade. And no surprise here, but I know pharma is upset about this. They've already filed eight lawsuits. What's this about, Dan? Just money? I mean, yes, drug makers stand to lose hundreds of billions of dollars over the next few decades. But pharma argues it's more than cash, that if you make selling drugs less lucrative, companies will stop making risky investments to develop, say, the next game-changing cancer drug. Here's Lauren Nevis from Pharma. We may not see the immediate impact of this on innovation tomorrow, but we are definitely going to see it for patients 10 years from now, patients 20 years from now. Any sense how or if this new policy will curb those future cures? That's the question, but no one really knows, Nancy. Now, there are some estimates. The federal government calculates it'll just be a few new drugs a year. One industry trade group put it at nearly 150 in the next decade alone. Some of the best evidence that we have comes from economists at Northwestern, and they found any drugs we do lose are likely to be at the edges, not the big-time blockbusters that we all want. Okay, Dan, so where do we go from here? What's next? By next February, Medicare will make its opening price offers. Drug makers get one chance to counter, then the two sides go back and forth haggle for a few more months. But by next fall, Medicare will be like, this is our best and final offer, take it or leave it. And those lower prices will take effect in 2026. Then Medicare gets to do this whole process all over again for 15 drugs next year and a total of up to 60 drugs, Nancy, by the end of this decade. Dan Gorenstein is host and executive editor of the nonprofit health policy news organization, Tradeoffs. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Nancy. Let me fix that gross domestic product growth number I had a few minutes ago. The latest data this morning show that annualized in the spring, the U.S. economy grew at a 2.1% pace. That is actually a bit slower than first calculated by the government. I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report. APM American Public Media. Cloudy in mid-70s today with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms all day, making out making it a rainy first day of school in Barnstable, Chelsea, Lexington, and Somerville, among others. Skies start to clear tonight as it falls to around 60. Sunny tomorrow, and it'll be back to the mid-70s. About the same on Friday, sunny and in the mid-70s. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.